0: episode 296 of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified Mindful Habit coach and all those wonderful things. And with me in studio today is uh, your friend and mine, Nate Christensen. Nate, welcome back to The Virtual Couch. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here again. Is this your fourth? I think it is. You now, you win. Really? You win The Virtual Couch. Wow. Dr. Jennifer Fidlinson, five's three. I think one of my daughters is three. And I think you are the first four-time guest. Yes. Yeah, so I got you this uh, fidget spinner. Thank you. Congratulations. My daughter thanks you as well. Yeah, and that one actually two out of the three spinners uh, light up with an LED. Really? Yeah, yeah. One of them doesn't. <laughs> so I am so excited to have Nate on here. But before we get to that, I am going to do a tiny bit of business. This is Thanksgiving week, and there is, I'm involved in a Black Friday sale, which is something I've never done before. I talked about it on last week's podcast, but I had Nate Bagley on, a world-renowned relationship expert. And Nate has a bundle of courses, and I was counting them, showing off to Nate this morning. I think there were 16 courses that people can get. And the 16 courses are everything from Overcoming Perfectionism and breaking generational cycles and uh, self-guided couples, healing trust, all of these wonderful things. And I am unveiling a brand new parenting course and it is called, and I really thought this was so clever, but when I'm reading it now, I'm so anti-shame and I worry that this comes with some shame, but I thought it was really clever at the time. Okay. So it's three keys to positive parenting. And then here's the part that I think is clever, but I worry. Bring the positivity without messing up your kids. And because we are all messing up our kids. And so I really feel like I need to say, without messing them up as much as you possibly could. Yes. And I mean it funny, but not really, but I do. (laughs)
1: I mean, when it comes to parenting, we're we're imperfect, right? We are, yeah. And that, I think, is something that's interesting, because my wife and I were talking, and and you and I didn't even discuss this beforehand, but like we're trying to minimize the damage, right? (laughs) That's really what we are trying to do. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it is. It really is. And I had this aha moment. I did what I thought at the time was a bit of a throwaway episode on birth order, and I called all my kids the night before, and here's what birth order says. Does this resonate with you guys at all? And I felt like three out of the four kids ended up very emotional, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is real. Yeah. And, and am I a crummy parent? But anyway, we're going to talk about that on this course, getting on the same page as parents, working together not to allow your buttons to get pushed. And uh, I'm going to talk about how to work together with the tap out method and demystifying. what Are you authoritarian or authoritative or permissive and, and all of those wonderful things? So the big key is I've got a link in the show notes Or you can go on my um, Instagram page and there's a link there that you click through. But it's 16 courses and it's $147, which is less than the cost of going to one therapy session. Go do that. It's Black Friday sale. I think it's the 26th through the 28th or something like that. So that bit of business. And then this is a very purposeful plug and you'll see why. I forget to talk about BetterHelp.com so much that I've had people ask me if they still sponsor the Virtual Couch, (laughs) which I'm grateful that they are such a ginormous company that they probably don't even notice that I forget to mention them. But if you are looking for online counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch and get 10% off your first month's treatment and find the therapist for you. And you can be on board within 48 hours. And I'm not giving this justice because it is merely segue to say that if you are local in my area or in the state of California or and you are looking for a therapist and you like Nate's vibe, Nate is open for business. I am. And, yep. Yeah. And you're starting, Nate's starting to fill up too, because all good therapists, there's uh, I love that the negative stigma around therapy is seeming to be dissipating. And so there is a great need for therapists and Nate is a great therapist and you are really enjoying this. Am I right?
1: Oh yeah. I love what, well, yeah, this is amazing.
0: Yeah. and And what's the main, who are you looking to work with?
1: I would say my core competency areas of competency are depression, anxiety, managing ADHD, yeah. addiction or compulsive behaviors. I can do other things but
0: those are the areas that that I feel very comfortable in given yeah. my
1: experience and education
0: and things like that. And I love that uh, talking about addiction Nate joins me every week on the Path Back group call. And uh, and takes a real active role there. And so I feel like I still get a lot of people that are looking for help with overcoming turning to pornography as a coping mechanism. And uh, that is something that you can help with. uh, Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. All right. There is our business today. Uh, We're releasing this on Monday. So hopefully you're getting ready for a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. And I told Nate this morning I've done now three or four of these episodes on the week of Thanksgiving. And I just enjoy I enjoy fun facts. So Nate doesn't know what the fun facts we are finding because I literally just Googled them. And this is uh, 2021 Thanksgiving fun facts. And then we're going to get to today's topic. And, um, we're gonna talk a lot about the brain today, so i I realize that uh, this is we'll get through this as quick as we can. But fun facts about Thanksgiving, three hundred and twelve dollars is the average person spending over the upcoming five day Thanksgiving period. Ten hours and two minutes, the length of time the average American male will need to spend on the treadmill to burn the forty five hundred calories consumed at the average Thanksgiving meal. Oh, boy, do you indulge on Thanksgiving? I love thanksgiving forty five hundred calories. <laughs> Wow, it's a fair amount, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think that's—I wonder if that's even uh, underestimating because I go big, I go really big on Thanksgiving. I think it's a, a wonderful time to just stuff yourself.
1: I—I I mean, I, I don't disagree. There's just something incredible about Thanksgiving. But I'm sitting here looking at the 10 hours and 2 minutes <laughs> and rethinking about how much I'm eating because that's okay. a lot. That time. is a
0: fair amount. I have—I've never talked about this. I have an absolutely unscientific, I'm sure, incorrect theory that at some point. Do you consume so many calories that your body is just passing them through? Like it can't possibly absorb the amount of fat I'm bringing into my body. I, I don't even know nearly <laughs> enough about the way the body absorbs okay, nutrition
1: yeah. to even and think I, to answer that. And
0: I Because I'm making it up. I really am. Another one, $26 million amount of property loss uh, caused by residential building fires each Thanksgiving. And I thought, boy, this is supposed to be fun facts. And I don't know who threw that in there. I don't know if this is a... I didn't, I didn't Google this to see if it's sponsored by the insurance industry. I'm not really sure. And then $604 million estimated amount Americans spend on Thanksgiving turkeys with 46 million turkeys volunteering for holiday service. <laughs> hey, I'm sure I'm <laughs> sure they had their wings up. they take me. <laughs> I say that because it says the word killed. I didn't look through these facts before, and these are going to be a bit distressing. I think we just lost half your audience. I did. Hang in there, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll go quick. 46% uh, share of people celebrating Thanksgiving. You try to avoid having uh, to talk. About politics during dinner, that makes sense, yeah. That does. And uh, this year, there's an uh, anticipation that 65% share of Americans expect COVID 19 to impact their Thanksgiving celebrations this year, but only 15% expect the impact to be significant. And then, there, there's well, let's just get to this four U.S. towns are named Turkey, 8.1 billion calories will be consumed by Americans at Thanksgiving. And then, there's our treadmill graphic again, yeah, 10 hours and two minutes. And uh, the world's most expensive Thanksgiving dinner, 181 grand. In 2019, New York City's Old Homestead Steakhouse. So that is an expensive dinner. Yeah, that's shocking. Okay. All right. That wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. (laughs) I'm still lost on the killed turkeys that are volunteering. They're volunteering, Nate. They are. Okay. So let's get to today's topic. Do you want to tell us what are we talking about today? Sure. So
1: my wife is in graduate school and one of her teachers recommended a book uh, that's called Buddha's Brain. And I believe it was published 2012. It's by Rick Hansen and uh, Richard Mendius. And my wife thought I would enjoy it. She actually bought it for me, not for her. Okay. Because her professor said, you know, if you really want to, like, explore the neuroscience of the brain and how we can kind of hone in and, and not only limit the weaknesses of the brain, because they have some, uh, s- some pretty major weaknesses, but really utilize the brain and its strengths and and create a more peaceful way of living yeah and so my wife was like that sounds like my husband so she okay. got that and i got it and i wasn't
0: really sure what to make of it and within the first few pages i was just hooked i was super interested so yeah i know and Nate's when te- he texts me and when i was going to speak in utah i said hey do you have any just stuff the brain things and he screen screenshots some pages of the book and sent it to me and, and i think when we've Nate's really good at explaining in previous episodes, talking about how the reward center works for the brain. And when we get on these group calls for the path back, I will often just say, Nate, what do you think about that from a brain standpoint? I mean, Nate is becoming this expert in explaining things about the brain. Now, whether he is explaining them correctly or not, I don't know because he sounds so confident. But I really feel like... Uh, you, you really do love this stuff and understand the mechanics of the brain.
1: Yeah. And you know, the truth is, is, I'm kind of a naturally a little bit of a skeptic. Okay. And so, when someone can put the science in front of me and help me understand, like, how that relates to, to our lives and our behavior, that helps me a lot more. I, I was actually discussing this with my wife the other day. There are concepts in here that, that I don't know what to call them, like, were are those people that motivational speakers oh, yeah, yeah. have been spouting since I was young and to me, I was like, yeah, I don't know, just because you say it doesn't necessarily mean it works for me. Uh-huh. And then I read this book, and there's a whole bunch of science supporting it. And I'm like, okay, well, I just was dead wrong about that. But okay. I need, I, I don't know why. I'm just such a skeptic. I need some information more than just
0: somebody saying, hey, do this, it works. Well, okay, what I like about that is, because I, as you're saying that, I feel like that resonates as well. And sometimes I feel like I'm almost putting down motivational speakers, even though I go yesterday, literally I went and did a motivational (laughs) uh, speech to a whole bunch of business owners. Uh And, but I feel like, I wonder if some of it is that reactance, that psychological reactance or being told what to do. Because I feel like even when somebody is motivating you or a motivational speaker is saying, you just gotta do this. And I feel like we still just have This inherent when somebody's telling us what to do, even if we're having this mixed signal of, okay, I want to do it, but but should I? And so I do wonder sometimes how much reactance does play into that. Because I try to deliver the message sometimes even from a, hey, what would it look like if? Versus the... You gotta just, you gotta get up, and you gotta pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and you gotta just think positive thoughts, and you gotta. Or what would it look like if you weren't telling yourself that you're a giant piece of garbage?
1: Yeah, and and that's a great point. Is it's sometimes it's not the message, but the delivery yeah. that's kind of off putting, um, especially when it's something really simple. And I mean, I say really simple, but some of these concepts are, are very difficult to incorporate into our lives. So. For me, I was diagnosed at a fairly young age with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety. So I have always recognized I'm a negative person and I felt like there's something wrong with me. Right. So when people are like, hey, just do this, you know, my my first reaction is, yeah, I don't know if I can do that. Yeah. Like I'm wired a little different.
0: Well, I appreciate that because then I feel when then people, if you're starting with that, yeah, something's wrong with me and I'm broken. And then when somebody is saying, no, you just need to. And I feel like you've got natural reactants kicking Mm -hmm. in. Of okay, no, I don't. And then, but does it still play into that? Man, what is wrong with me? Yeah. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. And I really do feel like semantics are important. And I'm telling you, I was talking with a couple that I've only been working with for a little while this week. And I told them at the beginning, I'm going to be really annoying with semantics. Mm -hmm. And they're going to think this doesn't matter. And so, some of the examples I like to give are when somebody says, okay, he's never there for me. And he always comes home and says, and I just right there, never and always. Then I feel like the brain already is like locked onto this track of saying, well, I can think of a time where I did. Right. Or And so I feel like the semantics are important. So even if, the, if we change it to, well, I feel like most of the time, or I, I feel like often, mm-hmm. I feel like the guy is still going to be listening more than, you know, what he needs to do is he never comes home on time and he's always late and he needs to understand. I feel like there is so much in that one little sentence yes. that is going to just put somebody into reactance and negative and what's wrong with me and oh yeah, well you... So, semantics. Yes. How about that?
1: No, I I, <laughs> Sorry, I agree. No, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, especially if we're trying to to solve a problem. And and as you know, all or nothing yeah. types of thinking coming out verbally is, I mean, it's bad for us to think and it's bad for other people to to try and, and troubleshoot
0: or problem solve. Yeah. So, Nate, you should never do that. <laughs> See, I should yeah, on absolutely. you and I told you an absolute. <laughs> yeah. no, that's uh, it's a double negative. So I, I guess. <laughs> you will do it. Yes. Okay. All right. So, let's get to these points. Okay. So you have, Three big points that we want to talk about today.
1: Yeah. And and so I I, I first need to start by asking people to keep an open mind. Okay. Because um, I look back at myself and if I was listening to this podcast and I was feeling really depressed, I, I might have some resistance to some of these things. So I'm just asking you to just keep an open mind. If there's some of these things that kind of make some sense that might be interesting to you, you can get the book, I think, on Amazon for about 10 bucks. Yeah. So I would recommend reading it if, if any of this sounds interesting. There's a lot more to it. I just cherry picked three things that really applied to me. And and so somebody else might read it and be like, okay, well, those were interesting, but I really like this other thing that didn't even come up.
0: Now, and I didn't even tell you, Nate, this is on the fly here, but, and I would love, I like how you're framing that. And if you do have questions or you feel like you are different or this doesn't apply, I really would like for people to shoot me an email through my tonyoverbay.com site. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be fun for us to come back and maybe even have a question and answer. Oh, episode. yeah. That'd because be cool. the last time we were on and we talked about attachment styles mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing, I got a lot of feedback. And I remember I was forwarding some of that to you. And, right. and I, I meant to do that then because I really like the interaction. I know Nate would like it as well because I love how vulnerable and open Nate is about the struggles that he's had or the diagnoses that you've been through. And so, if you have ever just felt like the therapist is up on their high horse and they don't understand, then please reconsider. And, but I would really love you to send questions or comments or how this applies to you. And then Nate and I can tackle that down the road. Yeah, that's, that's a great
1: idea. So the first point is going to require just a little bit of background. Okay. So I was reading just early on in the book and, and I had some questions about consciousness and consciousness at a basic level is our perception of ourselves and the world around us. Okay. And so I was trying to understand how the brain like perceives ourselves and perceives the world and how that might relate to mental health and things like that. So I started I was looking up videos online and I ended up on on YouTube where I was doing some search things, and I ran across some videos by a, a neuroscientist by the name of Neil Seth, okay. and he's out of the UK. He has a bunch of, he has, I think, a couple TED Talks, and, and he has a bunch of videos, and so I kind of went down that rabbit hole, and one of the first videos that I watched really opened my eyes to something that, that I, I hadn't fully considered before, and what he was talking about was some research that they were doing using fMRI. Scans, functional, um, MRI scans. And so those are the ones you can view things live. Yes, it's yeah. real time. So they yeah. can watch what the brain is doing as someone is behaving or viewing something. And, and, and it's fascinating. Several of the researchers talked about how we've learned more about the brain in the past 20 or 30 years than we knew in all of human history. Yeah. So the information is just coming in leaps and bounds. We're learning so much more than we ever had any idea about. And So he was talking about basically this, they put together a a subject study where they were showing people photos. Okay. And what they would do is they would show them pictures of faces and they would show them batch of of faces or they'd show them homes in a sequential batch. And what they found was they were looking at the brain to see how quickly it would take for people to identify whatever it was that they were looking at. What they found was if I showed you a series of faces and then showed you a house yeah. I mean, everyone knows what a face is and everyone knows what a house is. Yeah. It took longer for the brain to identify house after it was expecting (laughs) to see a face. Wow. And so, what the researcher really believed that that showed was the idea that you've probably heard, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Is completely backwards. So, it's not I'll believe it when I see it. Okay. Oh, okay. I'll see it when I believe it. (laughs) Which is which is fascinating. Like, our brain is trying to recognize what it sees. Wow. And then it can create an image. And I was like, okay, well, that's really interesting. What, what does that mean? Like, why does that happen? And it, it talks about this in this particular thing in the Buddha brain, which is our brain fills in the wow. gaps of everything that's around us. Like, I can see your office and perceive the entire thing, but apparently the way that our eyes work and our brain works is I'm getting bits and pieces of this whole
0: thing. But well, I've been in this office so many times that, <laughs> that my brain is filling in all of the gaps. Yeah. I'm laughing. I, I guest hosted on this podcast called The Sad Dads Club last week. Uh-huh. And I was throwing out, I was trying to sound smart and say all these things about therapy and psychology. And one of the guys really got excited and talked about, Have you, you've heard the one where you're looking through, and then they say, okay, where was the gorilla? Uh-huh. And you say, there was no gorilla. Right. And then you go back and look, and you're looking for the gorilla. And then the grill is right there. there. It is. It's wild. Yeah. So, this is kind of what you're talking about.
1: It's exactly what I'm talking Whoa. about. Um, just a couple days after that happened, my daughter and I were at my parents' and she she likes fruit and she asked for a Nana. She was sitting at the, they have like a, an island in their kitchen. She was sitting at the island asked for a Nana. And their fruit basket is over by the, like, the bread bowl, which is over, or the, I don't know, what do they call those things that hold the
0: bread? I don't know, I'm already thinking of my next joke. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, so,
1: so the, the fruit basket is over on the other side of the kitchen. I look over the fruit basket. It's not there. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry they don't have nanas. So we come back a couple hours later, and she <laughs> asks for another nana. And I realized that the fruit basket was sitting in the middle of the island. Oh, and, and I weird. never saw it because <laughs> I thought that it was somewhere else. But I mean, my eyes scanned that kitchen multiple times, yeah. but I wasn't looking for it. And because I wasn't like intent being intent where I was looking, I wasn't getting all the data. My mind just filling a gap. There's no fruit basket there. It's, there's,
0: it's never there. I don't know why it was there, but I didn't even see it. And it was right in front of me. The joke I was trying to make was the guy sitting on the couch right now, but there's not one. But that wasn't as funny <laughs> as I wanted it to be. But I'm now going into this world of confirmation bias once you buy a particular type of car now, oh my gosh, everybody has that car Mm -hmm. but the cars have all existed before so you now, okay, instead of I'll believe it when I see it, I see it when I believe it. So right. now I believe now I now there are a lot of those cars. now yes. I, Okay. Wow. Yes. Okay. So uh, I'll be over in the corner in the beetle yeah. position.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I think that there's a really strong and I'm sure you can see it already, yeah. really strong application with mental health. Oh man. Which is we talk about schemas and core beliefs, which yep. is once we have a belief about something. That's what we see everywhere. Like if if I have an interaction with somebody and my perception is is that person doesn't like me, yeah. My my automatic response to any interaction is going to be potentially negative, yeah. And again, the clinicians that wrote this book talked about this very thing, which is most of our interactions with people are neutral. Mm-hmm. And if you apply your own negative because you perceive that there's you guys have a problem, yes, to anything neutral, that neutral is now negative, yeah. So you now have, let's say for the average person, 80% of their interactions are neutral. If you're bringing your own negative belief about that person, or I I, I guess,
0: past possible negative experiences, how many experiences that are not negative are now negative? Okay, my mind just got blown by in three different other directions, where I did a podcast episode last week talking about how we like the people that we like, or why we like the people Mm -hmm. that we like. And it was almost this assumption that before you meet the person, you have this perceived uh, view of a friendship. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those don't meet your heroes vibes. Because then when you now start to interact with them, then if, yeah, if you're neutral and here's where part B of that went is I've been talking a lot lately about, we bring all of these, these childhood insecurities into adulthood. And, Um, And so then we, when we are looking you and I talked about this off the mic for a while this morning, when we're seeking that external validation, we want somebody to basically make our, make us feel good about ourselves. But that's a tall ask when there's so many variables in between that. And then when somebody says something that doesn't validate us, then we feel criticized. And when mm-hmm. we feel criticized, our natural defense is to defend our ego by then either shutting down, getting angry, the old gaslighting. So all of a sudden now we're going into things, even if it's neutral, and we're seeing what we, we, we see, what we believe, and then we have this cognitive bias and we're going in neutral and then somebody says something and we take that as a perceived slight, which is criticism, and then we shut down. We have to really be aware in order to even just have very positive interactions. Yes. Uh, yes. But I sound like I'm being all negative, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I, I don't think it's negative no. to, to
1: to understand something Absolutely. and to realize and, and this is this is one of these things that that I feel like there was I, I wrote down a couple of, of different I guess there were studies that I feel like help us realize what is happening in our life. So if we realize that our brain is only getting part of the picture mm-hmm. and that we are filling in the gaps. And that these gaps can be emotionally charged. Yeah. At some point, do we have to acknowledge that we may be looking at our world, at perceiving our world, and believe that it's all input? Okay? Yes. Not realizing that we are, that we are creating some of the input. Like, we're completely unaware that Absolutely. we are filling in the gaps. Absolutely. And yeah. so, how does that, again, how does that pertain to mental health? How many gaps are we filling in, but our belief is everything is coming at us? Yeah. Like, I, I'm unaware that I'm doing anything to anything that I'm seeing. I just feel like everything's happening to me, not being aware of how my thought process, how my brain is actually participating. In what's ha- in what's coming out.
0: at which then yeah because then I feel like that gets away from what I am really recognizing is so important is the the view of curiosity mm-hmm. instead of the view of criticism or being so reactionary now but I'd like what you're saying I think we're programmed that way so we yeah, have to we be are. very aware is this I know we got so much cool stuff to talk about here but I. I, I think this is one of those things that I've asked you to talk about on our group calls a couple of times, because when we do bring in input, we're naturally going negative, because if we get that wrong, we die. What was the, that oh, one you talked about? So, you've probably heard of the negativity bias. Yes.
1: Which is basically, if you have a positive experience or negative experience, the negative experience hits harder, yes. which is which is true. And to be honest, they talk a lot about this in the book, and it was Almost a little depressing how bad our negativity bias is. Okay. And and we can talk a little bit about that. That was going to be the next point. Oh, you're right. Okay. Um, But – I, like
0: I wanted totally want to get into that because I think it's really important so we'll get to that in a second Okay, you're right because you're I just looked on the notes and you're right that is a huge piece because talk about these two studies that Yeah, are, right. this is interesting so I thought that this really showed <laughs> how we kind of project how we feel into
1: what we do and we're not even aware of it yeah okay I actually ran into both of these watching uh, again I'm not like trying to shamelessly plug YouTube or I don't have a sponsorship <laughs> deal or anything but there's a lot of really interesting stuff on there and so Robert Sapolsky is a professor at Stanford and and he was giving a, a talk and he mentioned a couple of different studies that I thought really illustrated this well. And the first study that he mentioned was, I took a bunch of people that were to rate job candidates and sound like they have People that were sitting in hard wooden, uncomfortable <laughs> chairs, and people that were sitting in regular, comfortable chairs, and what they found is the people that were sitting in the hard, comfortable chairs Are the rated chairs or the, the hard
0: the hard chairs, not the comfortable chairs. I'm sorry, the hard, did
1: I say hard comfortable? Yeah, That's amazing, hard wooden chairs. Okay, thank, <laughs> okay. thank you. For, the people sitting in the hard wooden chairs rated the job candidates worse <laughs> than the people sitting in the soft. Comfortable so all you chairs. need is a cushion. Yeah, basically. So if you're going for a job interview, bring everybody a donut to sit on. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> that's your
0: biggest takeaway of the, the of today. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Make or just bring comfy chairs to everybody. Yeah. So okay, well that's interesting. Well, how about so how about another one? This, this was a, a kind of interesting study again. So some researchers were looking at judges and how frequently they end up giving people granting people parole when uh, when they're in prison for whatever reason, and they were looking to see what kinds of things people can do in order to be granted parole. Okay. And so they were just searching and searching and searching and searching and they could see some trends, but they weren't sure what exactly the reasoning behind that was. And what they eventually found was the judges had about a 60% chance of giving, granting someone pr- parole right after they ate. And there was almost a 0% chance of granting someone parole right before they were to eat again. And, and, they, and then the irony in all of this is when the researchers approached the judges about some of the reasons behind, you know, why did you grant this person parole and not this person, the judges spouted all sorts of case law. They, they completely believed that everything they did was based on objective logic. And they, they were completely unaware of the fact that, that they were thinking about Chick-fil-A. A, yes.
0: Oh. <laughs> so interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. And that, when I was reading your notes on that too, there's a book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman. And he just, there's a couple of things he talked about. He said, for example, when judges are passing down sentences on days following a loss by a local city's football team, they tend to be tougher than on days following a win. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he also said, if employers rely on only one job interview to pick a candidate from a similarly qualified group, the chances the candidate will perform better than others are about 56%. So you'd be just as successful picking the candidate from a hat. So it's wild to see. Yeah the the impact and again that is almost scary yeah so uh, talk about bringing a donut bringing a donut to sit on and bringing a donut for the guy to eat maybe both yeah exactly oh, yeah. yeah so everyone going into court bring a donut to sit on and a donut to eat yeah. and you're probably good I, I, I mean you, you got a 60% no. chance of getting- in parole, oh man. So,
1: okay. yeah. So, those I just thought were two really good illustrations. And I loved your illustrations as well, that that how we feel impacts the way that we act
0: and we may not even be aware of it. I think about this. So, when my wife gave me some really hard truth a few years ago of, hey, we're not really quite sure which version of you we're going to get when I come home. And <laughs> yeah. I thought, but I had to sit in my differentiated self and say, tell me more. Uh-huh. But she was absolutely right. And, and I found that it was almost when when I had ended a day, okay, if I'm being super honest, I don't know from the IRS is listening. But when maybe somebody paid in cash, so uh-huh. I walk home and I'm like, hey, kids, let's go out to dinner. Right. You know, but at the end of the day, if that wasn't the case, then I'd come home and if they're like, are we going out to dinner? I think, geez, guys, am I made of money? <laughs> right. And my wife said, that's a little bit of a mixed message. Yes. And I thought, indeed, it is. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. You know, and this isn't a semantics issue, but you can probably see
0: there's a way to to word that, which is, unfortunately, no one gave me cash today. Yeah. If I'm going to, but I have to own up to my own stuff there. Mm-hmm. Right but instead uh, I viewed that as criticism and then I went to great lengths to defend my fragile ego. Right. Right. Which we all do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that was a first point, which awesome. is basically that we project much of our reality and we are unaware of it. Mm. So just becoming aware that we're projecting that reality is a is a big part Absolutely. of moving towards towards a more peaceful existence. Yeah. <laughs> all right. The next point that I thought that was super interesting was the brain is naturally avoidant of pain, both physical and emotional. And this is super fascinating. I've been really interested in this. And, and I think that, that there's a strong connection for what we do in this as well, which is our brains apparently are not great at differentiating between physical and emotional pain. They're the pain center processing centers for emotional and physical pain overlap. Which is so wild, if you think about completely that. Completely crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Like Why would they do that? Like, those are two very different things. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think that people are aware of this. Why else would we have the saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, words will mm-hmm. never hurt me? I mean, that the reason that saying exists is because words can hurt. And we're trying to help people realize that, I don't know, that saying maybe isn't the best because words do feel painful. Right. But we're trying to maybe convey that... Hey, someone saying something mean to you isn't the same as somebody stabbing you with a knife.
0: Yeah, and but, but we're still going to feel.
1: Oh, yes. Right? Yeah, we're absolutely going to feel. So the big idea for me with this is, is, are we able to conceptualize which pain truly poses a danger for us and which pain is just Not feeling good. It's just uncomfortable. And I have some, there were some theories that people, I I did a little bit of digging online to see if people could figure out evolutionary, like evolutionarily, why would our brain need physical pain and emotional pain to feel the same? And one of the the people wrote something that I, I thought was an interesting possibility. Which was, for thousands of years, we were very tribal. Okay. And if we were jettisoned from the tribe, yes, we would die. Abandonment is death. Yes. So, I, their thought was, if we have to have the tribe to survive, and we have to be able to connect with people, and if some, if we upset people too much, and they're like, you know what, you're not worth it. You, you need to go somewhere else. Yeah. And that's going to be death. Then our brain is trying to help us understand. While it's not uh-huh. the same as putting your hand on a hot stove. It could it have might the same implication. Yes. It might feel the ah. same because they're both harmful. And, and I had a thought about, let's say you lived in, in a, I don't know, a farm in Oklahoma 150 years ago. yeah A, a severe cut could kill a person back then. The yes. doc, nearest doctors is 100 miles away. We don't have the same kind of, of medical care that you can get at the grocery store. Uh, you can't just drive down to the emergency room. You yeah. could fester, you could lose a wound. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities. And so maybe for our brains, it just hasn't caught up to all of our advances. So we perceive an emotional
0: wound perhaps in the same way yeah that it's potentially this, this could end up in death. Okay, what's funny, and I know I was a tiny distracted there for a second because I was looking up some notes from uh, episode Sue Johnson, founder of Emotionally Focused yes. Therapy's mm-hmm. Love Sense book. She said, it's, it, this is where I was, I remembered this quote. She said, it's now clear that there is a literal neural overlap in the way we process and experience relational and physical pain. Both pains, as experiments by psychologist Naomi Eisenberger of UCLA attest, are alarm systems designed to grab our attention and focus our resources on minimizing threat. The threat and hurt feelings arising from triggers such as rejection by a loved one is emotional loss and separation. And in mammals, perhaps because of their need for extended maternal care, isolation is a clear danger cue and it registers as a physical threat to survival. And that's where she said the, mm-hmm. the neural overlap explains why his researchers found Tylenol can reduce hurt feelings and emotional support can lessen physical pain, including that of childbirth, cancer treatment, and heart surgery. So our need for connection with others has shaped our neural makeup and the structure of our emotional life. So, that's wild. It is wild. And it's interesting you bring up Sue Johnson.
1: We had to watch something uh, in grad school that, that she had done. And she talked about how in some of her experiments, what they found was that people that had a stronger emotional connection, this was couples, uh-huh. would uh, the people that were experiencing pain would report lower pain than people Absolutely. that had a strained connection. Yeah. So, there seemed to be some kind of, and that's what they're talking about, there, some yeah. kind of, of emotional
0: strength That reduced physical pain. So, this is perfect. Now, uh, if if you're listening to this and you are thinking, I don't have that in my marriage, I feel like this is where we talked earlier about cognitive distortions or nothing, thinking Mm -hmm. of hang tight, don't go there. This newfound awareness is what then often is the cue to go start to seek help. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. And for a lot of people, I'm going to
1: pose this question to you because I don't really know to what extent. With your practice, with your experience, about how many couples come in that you see
0: eventually leave you in a better place? Yeah, their relationship is improved. No, it's such a good question because I don't know if you had this when you started out in therapy. We feel like we can help everybody, right? And that's and, and then you realize, out, no. oh man, not necessarily yeah. or not at all. Mm-hmm. And but the fact that people are taking action to go to therapy, there's some pretty fascinating data that shows that that is such a big step. Mm-hmm. And there was, I remember a training I went to a long ago, couples uh, symptoms reduced by up to as much as 40% and just setting up the therapy appointment. Really? Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It is. I don't think I've ever found that study again. So I may have made that one up in my <laughs> mind. Now that it's <laughs> the way memory job. works. Yeah. yeah. I do remember the training <laughs> diet and, and where I was at with that, mm-hmm. but I find that I really have broken things down. If you find But now there are variables here. So you have to have a connection with the therapist. And because then if you don't have that connection, there's data that says the modality doesn't necessarily matter. But there are also real going to somebody that knows what to do with with a couple is incredibly helpful. Yeah. And then emotionally focused therapy is a framework. And I've found that if you can get couples to now start to communicate in that framework, that then I think it becomes a real big version of people not knowing what they don't know. And so then there's a lot of aha and awareness moments of that they don't need to seek that external validation or that when their partner is expressing something that it's coming from a completely different place that their partner comes from. Mm -hmm. So it isn't an attack. And this is a very long answer to your question. But I feel like the I feel like if I'm looking at I think I've worked with over a thousand couples now. Okay. And I think that I would say 60 to 70% of couples that just didn't know what they didn't know. And they leave with far more awareness and connection and these new tools. And then they are in a much better place. Yeah, that's great. Um, the problem is I, because of the, work that I put out there, I do work with a fair amount of people that are concerned about potential personality disorders or personality disorder traits. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you learn pretty quickly if it's a matter of they don't know what they don't know, or if maybe it isn't necessarily a healthy, mature, or viable relationship. Right. So I do feel like I see a little bit more of that than most couples therapists, because that's what I put out there on my shingle. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I, I can't imagine... Like all of the
1: complications that bringing a personality disorder into a relationship can, can yeah. bring. But
0: you know what's interesting? And I know this isn't the time for this right now. But in the podcast that I do, Waking Up to Narcissism, mm-hmm. I, I really am trying to almost uh, change the conversation even around the word narcissism. Mm-hmm. Because the actual personality disorder of narcissistic personality disorder isn't as large as we think based on the amount of information we hear about narcissism out in the world. Right. But we all start out as little narcissists. And so it becomes a matter of, again, like what we're talking about now, having some awareness and, and then really having some being able to confront yourself and and then go seek help for the things that you become aware of. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay.
1: So I want to throw something out there that, that struck me when you first started talking when you said... 40% of couples see improvement just from making an appointment. Is that more evidence of what you believe you see? I
0: think that is spot on. That, that is, yeah, I like My that. My partner wants to try and fix this. Yeah, so there, this is good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I really think it is. A matter of fact, I feel like a lot of couples do come in, and I will hear often, we're actually doing okay. We're, and I and that one is, I get them talking for about 10 minutes, and we get into mm-hmm. the reason why they first set up the appointment. But I love just that initial point where they're coming in here together. They're seeing someone, and then yeah, I think that they feel like okay, I see that we are going to work on this.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I botched that too. I think I said I said it
0: backwards. This just, is this is what I keep. I doing. Can, I I'm I stuck have, on the original one still. Yeah, yeah. What I, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. I didn't even notice. I saw what I believed or I believed what I saw. i <laughs> <Okay. laughs> making myself confused. <laughs> so the part that I was, that I think when I was going earlier too, is the part where the brain is naturally avoidant. Yes. And so what, yes. and, and tell me, I think now I have made up this version of what you share about input. So input comes mm-hmm. in and then we either send it to a place of unicorns and rainbows or we send it into the depths of despair. Okay. That's not correct. That's not correct.
1: Okay. So well so when input comes in How dare you? It actually I'm sorry. Did I just invalidate Yes, you, you did. <laughs> I'm so glad you're differentiating. <laughs> I
0: am. <laughs> Tell me more. Okay.
1: So one of the fascinating things that the book talks about is when input comes in, it goes two different directions. Okay. So the first direction that it goes is towards the hippocampus, and the hippocampus is trying to figure out if we have a problem or not. Okay. And the other place that it goes is the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is slower acting. And th- this is why the negativity bias is scary. The reason it goes to the hippocampus is it's it's basically going to figure out if there's a problem oh, or not. So do we got to fire up the amygdala and get out of here? If the hippocampus says, hey, we got a problem, it goes right to the amygdala. And that's when it's <laughs> still in the prefrontal cortex, go- have, having gone the other direction to figure out exactly what's going on. Now, they use the example of a stick on the ground if you're hiking and you see a oh, yeah. stick on I the love, ground. Oh, yeah. this. Is my favorite one. looks just like a snake, right? Yes. So... Your body immediately, you don't even know what it is, but your hippocampus is already identified. Hey, that looks like that could be a problem. So, so you're you jump not backwards. even aware. Right. That's what's so cool about this. You don't, you don't have any idea what it is. The prefrontal cortex is still trying to figure out what it is. It doesn't yeah. act as fast. But our danger system is fast. It's way fast. I don't know if way faster, but it's, it's faster than the prefrontal cortex. So we jump back. Our heart is racing. Our blood is, you know, the body just released a bunch of cortisol. We got blood going to our limbs ready to, to fight that snake or run away yeah. from that snake. And we don't even know what it is. Our prefrontal cortex still hasn't figured out what it is. But we are ready to run. We are scared. So we have to understand. Like, we have the capability to be afraid of something without even knowing whether or not we have a reason to be afraid of it. Absolutely. So on that level, do we understand, in many cases, emotion hits
0: before logic hits. No, we don't. And this is amazing. And I'm grateful that the uh, people doing the yard work outside of <laughs> great, timing. <laughs> great timing. So I hope that doesn't <laughs> pick up on the microphones. But, uh, you know, this morning, it's always dark here and I go mm-hmm. turn off the white noise machine. Mm-hmm. But there was a shadow because a light in a closet was on. And it was really funny because I immediately reacted and I felt it. Yeah. But then it's a shadow. Right. It's more often than we think. Right. And so that's what we have to realize is our brain is
1: going to the negative like almost immediately and and then we have to figure out okay is this actually a problem or is this just a hey be careful situation most of these tend to end up being hey be careful situations yeah. and and we we need to understand where our brain comes from our brain comes from who
0: knows how many thousands of years of a very very dangerous world it's a don't get killed device <laughs> it i would is say this is not a make jokes device matter of fact, court jesters. We had to have them back right, in the day. Right. We had to have professional comedians help us feel happy because Yeah, because the day was... just stunk. Yeah. And if they had a bad set, they got killed. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't want to you don't want to go on stage and stink. No, they're doing though, hey, how about that difference of men and women, right? And if it's one boo from the king, the guy's dead. Yeah. Yeah. That'll really get your amygdala going. It will. <laughs> how, were, the, how were they funny? I think that's why they wore silly costumes and just ching bells in their hands or whatever. People thought that was funny. I mean, is that what they actually did, or is that our
1: conception of or uh, perception? It's of what, what they, they
0: put on a deck of cards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So back to the back yes. to the topic at hand. So what we need to understand, and the researchers talked a lot about this, is that our brain has an inherent negativity built mm-hmm. in. Based on, is what you said, our don't-get-killed device brain. Yeah, so that's a bless its heart. Like, it, it means what well. It's trying to keep us safe. Yeah. The problem is, is it's not completely rational. Yeah. So, let's just, they, I don't know if I came up with this example or someone else did or I read it <laughs> in the book, but I, I think it works. So. Yeah. If you go back a couple thousand years and you're living on, a, I don't know, a, a tribe in, in Africa, there's dangers everywhere. Yeah. And if you are out and you're looking at, I don't know, there's an Impala
0: and you want to kill this thing and you want to take it back. So we're not so talking you, about the car, the Chevy. Uh, yeah, car. yeah, yeah. You want, you want to kill the car. <laughs> okay. Yeah. To, okay. Sorry. ADD, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know that was a car. And every time I go rent one, I feel like I get an Impala. Okay. Okay. Back to you. So we're going to go see if we can get food for our tribe and we're going
1: to take it back and we're going to have a party and everybody's going to eat and it's going to be great. Okay. Well, let's say that you now think. You see a lion stalking that impala. Yeah. And so the question is, is it worth trying to get that food? Because oh. if you get the food, everybody's gonna eat and it's gonna be great. If the lion gets you, you die, it is over. You have one shot. Exactly. Yeah. So that's our good. our brain is basically wired to be more afraid of a negative consequence than it is. To push us
0: towards a positive outcome. Now, that's a great example because it would be great to have a feast. But if you miss that one time, you're gone. Right. And you don't know tomorrow
1: you might find an Impala and there may not be a lion around. Yeah. So there's always more like the the brain is always going to convince you that there's going to be more opportunity in the future. But if
0: this is a negative thing that has the worst possible outcome. There's nothing, there's, there's no tomorrow. But then we've taken that into the everything from, I don't know, I'll, I'll be in a better position to write the paper tomorrow. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what we do is we have this fear of a bad
1: outcome, which will prevent us from pursuing something that we may want if we perceive that there could be a negative attached to it. And some very interesting examples are how many people like dream of i don't know being like especially with kids apparently youtube star is now one of the most popular careers for kids uh, no. to choose yes. but how many people end up never doing it because they are afraid of putting themselves out there they yeah. don't want to get criticized because again emotional pain feels like physical pain. Oh, I feel that one sometimes with the, the emails that come in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're human. Yeah. yeah. Like, man, I listened to that podcast you and they did. It was terrible.
0: Yeah. Like, I, I already anticipate, right? No, and you get the ones like, uh, get on with the thing. Stop yeah. talking about <laughs> Right? Now <laughs> yeah. I realize, oh, bless your heart. When you have your own podcast listener, then you can not promote things to pay for the cost. And look at me now, justified. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> I mean, it it is. That emotional pain is right there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's the thing to understand. We need to understand as much as possible, that, that, is this fear rational? Mm. Is this fear, maybe this fear would have been rational a couple thousand years ago, a couple hundred years ago. Is it rational today in 2021? Yeah. Is it rational? And, and yes, I acknowledge that putting ourselves out there is uncomfortable. My wife and I do a podcast and it's, yeah. it's oh, very yeah. uncomfortable for us both because we're quiet and we like to just do our own thing. And so it's, it's, it's difficult to put yourself out there, but.
0: Our brain is doing that. That's natural to our brain. It is. And that's where I feel like, and by the way, please go subscribe to Working Change by <laughs> Nate Christensen, right? And and his wife, Marla. I mean, it's, it's really good. You guys, I mean, Thank do you. a nice job. We're, we're, we're very early on, so yeah, we're still Please go do. But I, and this is where I love, and I know we aren't talking about this today, and, uh, but acceptance and commitment therapy, because once we are aware and we acknowledge that The brain saying, Yeah, people might say bad things. Mm -hmm. Then we don't even there's we can't say, Don't think that. We can't say what's wrong with me for thinking that Mm because you're a human being. Right. And then you can invite those thoughts to come along with you while you do said difficult thing, especially if it's something that really matters to you. Yeah. And then over time, your brain finally just because as it becomes this new neural pathway, your brain finally says, Okay, go ahead, do your podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you brought that in. It was perfect
1: timing because the third point. So the first point being we project much of our own reality, second point being our brain is naturally avoidant yeah. and, and so we're going to f- naturally fear physical and emotional pain. And our la- and the last point that I really took from this book as you can imagine being called Buddha's Brain yeah. is that mindfulness holds the key. So I actually want to throw it to you. You are yeah, the mindfulness like, thing. Like, how do you see this applying so well to these issues that our brain inherent
0: brain and this is funny yesterday I did go do a motivational speech to a bunch of business owners and they wanted me to talk about anxiety or last night on our group call with the path back I feel like all roads lead back to mindfulness yeah because and I talk about the physiology that's going on and I think you so summed up so many things that lead into that as well but I will just tell you this and I say this whenever I can when I get a client a new client I say I will work in within the first session or two please start a mindfulness practice Mm -hmm. and I I say to myself, and this is not scientific data, 25% of the people are going to never do it, Right? they're like, okay, no, I've heard it, whatever. Mm -hmm. 50% are going to do a little bit of it so that they get the concept and they're going to feel like, no, that, that it does help, but Mm -hmm. they don't even know what that means that it can help. And then 25% are going to say, I am paying you. I will do what you're asking and they will start a mindfulness practice. And I just, this is oversimplified, but they will seek, they will find the promised land much sooner than those that don't embrace mindfulness practice because when you, everything you just laid out. So we're the brains that don't get killed device. When our heart rate starts to get elevated, our brain floods with its cortisol, right? Mm -hmm. And that in its most simplest uh, form shuts down the prefrontal cortex as your amygdala fires up. So you are, you're gaming your system to begin with. So your body gets into this fight or flight, which then shuts down the rational part of the brain. And so then you get in this vicious loop of the more, and now you notice I'm anxious and that makes me even more anxious and my heart rate to raise more. So a mindfulness practice, and again, man, see, I'm on my soapbox now. Anyone listening saying I've tried it and I just can't, I can't stop my thoughts. I can't clear my head. No one can. And, and I feel like that's the biggest fallacy of mindfulness and that the mindfulness practice I love, this app called Headspace, this British guy, Andy, talks me through some in through the nose, out through the mouth breaths. Yeah. It lowers my heart rate. And then he goes silent. And what happens in that silence is I think all the things. I think... I still can't believe I do this after this many years. I have so much to do today. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't need to do this anymore. And then he comes back and he says, okay, let's just go back and focus on your breathing. Mm-hmm. And so then, okay, out through the nose, out through the mouth, silence again. My brain goes crazy. Then he says, okay, come back and focus on a sound. And then I hear the white noise machine. Or there have been times I've been doing it and I hear the, the guys doing the lawnmower outside. And so what you're doing is you're training your brain that when you start to think and worry and ruminate, because those things will elevate your heart rate, which will then get that cortisol going, that when your brain starts to notice you are doing that, you have practiced that when I notice that, I come back to breathing. I come back to listening. And that when that happens, and it's exactly what you said about the, I like that, the logical part, I always say the visceral reaction or the emotional part of the brain is so much faster than the logical part, Mm -hmm. that what you're training your brain to do is this guy, when his heart rate starts to spike or elevate, he's going to do the breathing thing. So let's go ahead and start doing the breathing thing because we want to be as efficient as we can because we want to use as less electrical activity as we can because we want to live forever. That's right. your brain saying all that yeah. stuff. So then I was sharing last night on this group call and then I think this will be a great way to maybe end with the part that you were talking about, but I was I joke often now. I don't think I can get I almost feel like I can't get angry anymore. <laughs> and it's kind of weird. Because, I, and I had this happen again, I drove down to LA last weekend to uh, spend some time with one of my daughters, and I'm six hours on the freeway, and people do not drive kind. Mm-hmm. And and you're, I'm just noticing it. Oh, I'm noticing that car cutting me off. Or, oh, that I'm noticing the person uh, behind me, and I'm noticing I'm wanting to give them a brake check. That's right. fascinating. <laughs> Instead of like the, oh my gosh, and this is that. And it's just, it's so cool. Yeah. So, you had an explanation for that based on this book, Right. Well, they have a series
1: of, I guess you could call it labels, if, okay. if that makes sense, for that kind of I, I, changing the way that you operate. And the, it's both the way that you think and the way that you behave. Mm. And so, the, there's like four stages. And mm. the actual terms they use, the first stage being most natural stage, like not the happy place, they call unconscious incompetence. okay. And then that would be the example that they use is what if your partner tells you to ask you to get milk uh-huh. on the way home and the partner forgets and you're sitting there and you don't have milk. Yeah. And you're like, OK, I'm mad. I told you to do this. Or I asked you to do this and you didn't do it. It feels like a slight for me and I don't get my milk yep. and I'm just upset. Yeah. So that's what they call unconscious incompetence. The next step they call conscious incompetence. And in that stage, you forgot the milk, and I am upset about the milk, but I also realize that I'm upset, and I'm holding back the anger, but I'm stewing inside. So I'm maybe not acting upset,
0: but inside I'm upset. And you know what's funny about that too, Nate? Uh, That part, I feel like a lot of people get to that part and stop. And so that's where, and I think we even talked about this on the group call last night, of the awareness doesn't feel as cool as we want it to feel. Right. Because it's almost like... I, well, I didn't. I wasn't even aware before. Mm-hmm. Sure, I would get mad, but now I'm aware that I'm getting mad. But I don't. I can't. What do I do with that? Right.
1: Yeah. Right. So you're just sitting in your feelings, and and you don't want to act out towards the other person, but you just don't know what to do with these feelings. So the next stage they call conscious competence, and that's similar to the to the last stage. You're stewing in your emotions, and you don't feel good, but you're challenging these. This is kind of the CBT stage of everything, okay. which is the idea that okay. yeah, but you know they do a lot for me. They Sense. usually bring the milk and and so you're kind of arguing with yourself at that point. Okay. And then for them stage 4 or kind of this this higher stage is the
0: idea that the reaction doesn't even come up. And I love just you've got the book right here and when you were showing me this before, I feel so validated that the reaction doesn't <laughs> come up and uh-huh. I feel like this is there's so many things that one does not know until they know. Right. And so this is the part where that alone is where I say I beg of you to start a daily mindfulness practice, and it takes a longer than you think yeah. to get to the place where you get to this stage four. But I feel like people will say, but you still get mad, right? And I don't think so, because I'm not aware of it. Right. Because I don't think it comes up. So, it's interesting. They call this unconscious competence. Wow. So, at this point... Yeah, I'm not aware that it's not happening.
1: Right. Yeah. So, that's the place that, that for and obviously the Buddha brain really espouses the idea of mindfulness. And that is the pinnacle. Okay, so that's where we can get to through years of effort and and things like that, to a point where we're not even feeling reactive to something. We know we don't have the milk. Yeah, we, we might even wish we had the milk, but yeah. we're not
0: angry about it. No, we're not. We're just noticing it. Yeah. And that's the cool part. So I do remember, I, I feel like a very human experience is I did several months of headspace. And I enjoyed it. But I just thought I this is what I'm supposed to do, almost a checkbox item. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and I started again. They've got these, the, they call them the basics, and it's three 10-day programs. Mm-hmm. So I went back, and I, I think I'd gone a few months after doing it for several months, and, and then I didn't do it. And then I said, I'm going to do the basics again. And I remember it was 20 or more days into this second round. So we're months into this now. And I remember at one point where I'm doing the thing where he goes quiet and he's just saying, and it's silence. And I'm just, my mind is going so fast. And then I remember there comes Andy's voice and he says, come back to your breath. And I remember, I so remember this clearly that I didn't have to do anything. My, I just was there Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, there it is. Yeah. That's that's what we're looking for, and so that was amazing. And so, whether you get it that when I was talking to these guys yesterday at this event, I said one of the simplest things I do, and I do this before I go to bed every night. I do it even if I'm at church, I'm waiting for something to happen or whatever. On I count one on the in breath, and I count two on the out breath, and then three on the in breath, and I just try to get to ten. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing how some days I can't. I mean, it's you're getting to four, five, six, then you're thinking about things. And when you notice your thinking, you just notice it. Oh, I'm noticing that I am not counting. Yeah. And you come back to counting. And some days you're at 15 or 16 and you just blew right past 10. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's a nice practice that is breathing to lower your heart rate and then noticing thought and coming back to present. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's beautiful. And I I love that getting to that point. Like once we understand, I didn't even mention some, like all of the interesting things. I'll throw that out now. Like, yeah, we process like, faces that are showing negative emotion faster than we process faces that are showing positive emotion. Mm. Like, we are constantly looking for problems. Our brain is, like, everywhere lurking for problems. If we can get away from that, if we can be present with ourselves, the breathing activities. Now, mindfulness, I really like this definition. I think it came from the book, was focusing your attention. Yeah. So focus your attention on things that are that matter or important to you. Like the chance of you and I sitting here and a car coming through your office and wiping us out is next to nil. So I I, I don't need to be in my fight or flight right now. Is it possible? I, I, I guess, but it's so infinitesimally low that and, and even if it did happen, how? What am I going to do? No,
0: it's right? going to hit and it's going to be over. <laughs> well, it's funny, and I love your example too. There's a I share the wall with Doctor Nick, the chiropractor, mm-hmm. and when I start to podcast right now at seven thirty six. And I have to turn the white noise machine back on. Mm-hmm. And so I find that anything after seven, I will notice that I am starting to worry about Dr. Nick showing up and I don't have the white noise machine on. And uh-huh. then I, and I've had to do it while we're talking. And then I notice it and I bring up myself back to the present. Now, if I hear his door open, I'm going to go running out of the room to go turn <laughs> the white noise machine on. But I but I just like that example where it's I am. It's almost as if I am looking for trouble and I'm looking for something. Right. What, what if Dr. Nick comes in? What if that happens? What if? And it's like, ah, interesting. Yeah. I'm noticing that I am going there and then back to present with you. Yes.
1: Yeah. So all of this about is trying to chill our brain out. Our brain will drive us crazy. And if you think of, I sometimes use the example of like a, a wild stallion, like uh-huh. a, just a, a free like horse. Yeah. They're very powerful and they're very beautiful. I think that that's a little bit like our brains. If you can get them, and break them of their – and do and have them do what you want it to do. Yeah. You can do incredible things with it. If you just let it do what it wants to do and you're on its back, it's going to go crazy. That's good. And you're going to feel completely out of control because you're not in control. Yeah. Like your brain is just doing all of this pre-programmed stuff, which is not good for us.
0: No. And, and then once we recognize that we're reacting, then that's the opportunity we have to then take action yeah. in a different direction. Yeah. Nate, I think our goal was a standard hour. I think we went over, but I think it was... Oh, it was, dang. I'm sorry. No, I think it was gold, <laughs> my friend. Yeah. Nate Christensen, thanks for coming back here on uh, the fourth time. And we'll have to have a fifth plan soon. Go find Nate's podcast, Working Change. And reach out with questions, comments, your thoughts. And if you're interested in working with Nate, how do they get a hold of you? So they can reach out to me in my email, Counseling at gmail.com. Or send me a message. Through yeah, my it might be easier with yeah. Tony
1: because there's so many spellings of Christensen. And yeah. like there, there's a lot of potential errors there. Yeah, so just <laughs> go
0: through contact form at tonyoverbay.com and I'll forward things to Nate. And uh, have an amazing, wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, have fun with your 10 hours on the treadmill. Oh boy! <laughs> and taking us out as per usual, the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence with her song "It's Wonderful." And I will see you next time.
1: Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other
0: end. The pressures of the daily grind.